to the Centre for Independent Studies on Liberty. I'm your guest host today, Tom Switzer, happens to be the Executive Director here at CIS. Well, today, something special to commemorate the 100th anniversary of um, the, um, the, the 100th episode of On Liberty. It's my great pleasure to welcome the usual host of On Liberty, Salvatore Babonas. G'day, Salvatore. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, my the tables have turned. It's I who'll be interviewing you, you this time. I did interview you once for the program. You remember last year? You're the one guest I remember. You always tease me that I forget my guests, but I do remember I interviewed you. <laughs> well, you've had, well, the show at least has had 100 episodes and you've covered a wide range of issues. Obviously, we started it around March, April, right at the height of the pandemic right. in 2020. Um, and you've covered so many issues, obviously the pet CIS issues like economic policy, education policy, cultural issues, indigenous affairs, foreign affairs, but also unorthodox subjects like animal justice. Yeah. And uh, do you have any particular memories, special memories or favourites? Well, first, I want to be very clear. Uh, I didn't run all 100 of those episodes. Of course, we have the production team, Max Hawk Weaver, Nico Malian, you know, fantastic. But also Glenn Fay was a frequent guest host. Uh, Monica Wilkie was a guest host several times. Some of our most watched episodes came from Monica Wilkie. Even Simon Cowan has sat in the hot chair, which is uh, remarkable for those who know him, that we actually got him in here hosting On Liberty. And of course, Tom, you yourself have hosted On Liberty at least once or twice in the past. And now you're doing it. Uh, uh, today and hopefully for the future. Hope we can yeah. rope you in as our future host. But from particularly memorable guests, oh, look, our first guest was the most memorable, Peter Curdy here from the Center for Independent Studies, kicked us off with a episode about the morality of the COVID lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Peter remains uh, one of our most watched guests. Uh, both of his appearances on On Liberty are among our top 10 appearances. So, you know, fantastic that we've had him on. Of course, yes. Uh, Janet Albrechtson and Judith Sloan, who could forget either of them? <laughs> Janet talking about the deals, Judith talking about the economic uh, implications of COVID relief. So, you know, both fantastic guests. But I think the big thing we've had is China, China, China. Yeah, big issue, <laughs> we, of course, with COVID. Yeah. Oh, our, well, our most watched episode of all time was you know, more than 14,000 views from David Kelly, who's a sinologist here in Sydney. Uh, another prominent Australian sinologist, David Goodman's been on the program. We've mm -hmm. had an American sinologist, Elizabeth Laris. Uh, Rowan Kallick, a prominent sinologist and mm -hmm. journalist here mm -hmm. in Australia, has been on the program. Even Chin Jin, who's the uh, president of the Federation for Democratic China, has appeared in all of our China-focused episodes have been very well watched and well -watched. And one episode you've missed is Monica Wilkie's. Uh, that was with the uh, biological professor Gad Sad. Now, he's a leading player in the culture war debates. He's the author of uh, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. That reached 30,000. But a key, I mean, this is something to forget. We shouldn't forget this, that since March, April 2020, when you started on Liberty, our uh, CIS subscription rate would have probably been about 15 to 20,000 members. It's now up to 50,000 members. And we've been helped in large part because of On Liberty, which has also helped drive traffic to some of our very popular um, online programs, such as the, the interview I did with John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago and Kishore Mabulbani from Singapore. I think that's reached close to 600,000. But look, it's just a reminder that even during the dark days of COVID, uh, we could use uh, technology like webinars and Zoom uh, 
That's but the YouTube algorithm is, is a mystery to everyone, especially to YouTubers. But most yes. people use live streams. Uh, most commercial YouTubers use live streams to raise money. They do it because people give donations directly on the stream. Mm -hmm. We've used it very differently. We, we've used live streaming as a tool to reach out to members and prospective members to get them involved in the CIS family. Remember, mm -hmm. we're the only and I stress this, the only public affairs think tank in Australia and one of the very few in the world who does these streams live with the intention of giving our viewers the opportunity mm -hmm. not only to comment, but to ask questions. We're, we're one of the very, very few, maybe the only, it's the only one I know of live stream out there in this space that actually takes viewer questions and puts them to our interviewees. And that for us, it was the whole point of the program the yes. whole point was to keep people engaged during COVID. This wasn't us pushing out our ideas to the world. This was us engaging with the world in a two way mm -hmm. conversation about ideas. Well, more power to you. Now, you have distinguished yourself as a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney. You also wrote a, a widely acclaimed book on Trump and populism. I think it was in 2018. Right. You received a rave review in the Wall Street Journal. But at CIS, you've really distinguished yourself with a paper that you published, I think it was in August of 2019. Um, and it was called The Student Boom and the Risks It Poses to Australia's Universities. Right. Tell us more about that report and the, and the reaction internationally. I still get calls uh, from reporters, both in Australia and abroad, about the China student boom paper. And I think the reason is that we at CIS did not take an alarmist approach. We weren't worried that Chinese students were somehow subverting democracy or that Australia didn't want foreigners. There was nothing xenophobic in our work. All of it was about the budgetary risks the universities were taking and the ways that the universities, the Australian universities, were warping their own agendas in the uh, attempt to just gain ever more students from China. So the, the risk posed in our paper was a risk to the Australian university system, not mm. a risk posed by Chinese students as such. Now, as it happened, the pure coincidence, yes. we warned in August, in August 2019 that something that were to cut off the flow of international students from China uh, could have deleterious effects on the universities. And who knew, but just a few months later, there was such an event that cut off the flow of international students to Australian universities. And it had not all of the effects we predicted on some universe. Some universities had the sort of impacts we predicted. Um, others, uh, University of Sydney, my own university, uh, amazingly was actually able to increase the number of Chinese students during Extraordinary. this time. Well, it converted people. It, it, the university seems to have realized that Chinese students who were already in Australia would not want to go home. No, and so it right. converted those undergraduate students into postgraduate students at the university. So there were different responses, but all of this was presaged by the paper, which the response from the group of eight and from universities of Australia and by most vice chancellors was, oh, there's no risk here. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's money on the table. These are overblown uh, suggestions that there could be any risk to this revenue flow. And, well, I mean, we didn't want to be proved right no. by coronavirus of all things, but I think we were on the nose. And if those bets on the international student market don't pay off, um, what, does, what are the consequences for Australia? Well, it's Australian taxpayers who ultimately foot the bill, yeah. right? And we saw that during the pandemic. So even though the Australian universities as a whole actually got through the pandemic in reasonably good financial shape, the universities leveraged the panic 
at the beginning of the pandemic to ask for extra money. And they actually got a doubling. That's right. A doubling an extra billion dollars on top of the standard Australian government block grant for research of one billion, roughly one billion dollars a year. The Australian government doubled its funding for university research during that year on the fear that a lack of international students was going to uh, compromise revenues at those universities. In fact, and we did a later follow-up paper showing that, well, no, revenues from international students weren't down that much. Actually, most yeah. of the university losses that came from the coronavirus pandemic were investment losses. They invested mm -hmm. poorly. Uh, these losses were not due to a lack of international students. So as it happened, you know, what we predicted might come true came true. The universities went to the government for extra money, and then they spent 2021 essentially wallowing in cash. It's not just the higher education issue, it's agriculture and tourism as well. Let me bring this to the present. The Ukraine crisis has clearly exposed the folly of the Eurozone's, especially Germany's, dependency on Russia for natural gas. Yeah. Uh, do you think that if there was a similar crisis with China, and of course the re relations between Canberra and China have deteriorated dramatically since you wrote that paper in August of 2019, could we in Australia have the same type, types of problems with respect to dependency on China for not just higher education, but agriculture, um, tourism and foreign investment generally? Well, so first of all, we wrote that paper. That, that, that is, the crisis happened. Uh, China, you know, our trade with China was cut off and we were the first to press with a paper in February 20, uh, 2020 about the potential, uh, February, March 2020, about the potential economic impacts of the coronavirus crisis. Now, we weren't focused on trying to estimate this enormous impact of lockdowns. All of that was in the future. Mm -hmm. What we wanted to focus on was what would the lack of Chinese uh, tourists and Chinese buying, what, what would the effects of on the coronavirus crisis of this of this uh, faltering of international travel, what would that mean for the Australian economy? And we identified precisely the sectors you mentioned, tourism and agriculture as being the sectors that would be most affected. Now, there, we've seen a doubling down on that as there has been, uh, you know, have there been, have there been de deterior deteriorating relations between Australia and China, which have resulted in Chinese informal but very effective sanctions against Australian agriculture. But oh, you know, again, all of that was was material that we warned of the risk well yes. ahead of time. Now we can't act to ameliorate that risk. Acting is the government's responsibility. We wish they'd taken our advice. Here's a, a comment by Benjamin. Businesses that become dependent on single sources of revenue become captured by those sources of revenue and lose relevance to the larger market as they pander. This ultimately kills the business. Salvatore. Well, that's certainly true, but it's also certainly true that the government has played a big role in promoting the ties that later were cut off. So these aren't, you know, businesses aren't operating in a vacuum. They're operating in a government regulatory mm -hmm. environment. Uh, the government had put all its bets on China. And I don't think we can blame Australian businesses for taking advantage of, uh, you know, the market that was expanding. Uh, the, the real problem here is not so much that businesses came to depend on China as a market. Businesses are going to sell to whoever's willing to buy. Uh, the problem here is that the government was, was focused just with blinders on that the only market Australia cared about was China throughout the 2010s. Yes. Now we're, we're seeing that change now, but we're seeing that change late as a response to the crisis, not proactively before a crisis occurs. 
Now, it's been three years since you wrote your thesis for CIS. And as I said before, the relationship between Canberra and China has deteriorated dramatically during that period. Um, how worried should we be about the deteriorating nature of this relationship, particularly against the backdrop of the intensifying security competition between China and the United States? Oh, I might be contrarian and suggest that Australia should be proud of the deteriorating relationship because of the reasons it's deteriorating. It's not deteriorating because Australia has done something provocative or anti-Chinese. It's deteriorating because Australia has stood up for very basic principles of international law and international behavior. Uh, Australia you know, simply has required that, not required, demanded that China be a responsible actor on the world stage. And I don't think Australia's done very much of that. You know, Australia has been very narrow in not even naming China when it calls out China, but instead saying, look, everyone in the world should be open about the sources of coronavirus. Everyone in the world should be open about uh, trade uh, mm. restrictions and should you know, should be f put these through formal processes at the World Trade Organization, not do them kind of under the carpet uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they can't be held accountable. Uh, you know, so Australia has not done anything egregious to outrage China. Ch China has been outraged because China going to China. I, I mean, China has been outraged with Australia, uh, with Korea, with Japan, with the United States. So your critics, your critics, and, and there are many of them, like the, the former Prime Minister Paul Keating, the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, past guest here at CIS, uh, the distinguished professor of history at the University of Sydney, James Curran, there are a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Ga uh, Jeff uh, Raby, the former ambassador who, who's spoken at CIS in the past as well. They would say, Salvatore, that no, it's actually Canberra that's provoked China during the course of the last few years. Firstly, with the Turnbull government's decision on the foreign interference laws that was clearly aimed at one country, China. Yeah. The Turnbull government's decision to... Uh, reject the Huawei bid for entry into our 5G digital network. And of course, Scott Morrison's government, right at the height of the pandemic in 2020, calling for an international inquiry into the origins of Wuhan. We've been poking at our largest, poking in the eye of our largest trade partner and getting a lot closer to Uncle Sam. How would you respond to those criticisms? I, I think, first of all, these were all reasonable and remedial uh, measures taken by the, by Australia. These were not new efforts to uh, somehow attack China. These were things that should have been done long ago. I mean, let's take each of those in turn. Um, should Australia have some kind of foreign influence registry where when foreign governments and foreign individuals want to influence Australian politics, they should have to declare it. Well, you know, many other countries also have these mechanisms. Australia is just playing catch up with them. Uh, should Australia have allowed a Chinese state-owned company to mm. get a foothold in its in its telecommunications sector? Well, you know, Australia let Chinese state-owned port companies get a foothold in its port sector. It, uh, you know, it, it let a lot go by, you know, land purchases in Australia uh, until it, Australia finally said, well, wait a minute, these are companies linked to a foreign military with which Australia has, you know, if not necessarily unfriendly relations and certainly no kind of alliance or friendly, uh, friendly relationship. And these are strategic issues that every country should be uh, cognizant of. I mean, we all know that China will not let foreign telecoms operate in its telecommunications sector at all. There's a blanket prohibition in China on any foreign involvement in its telecommunications sector. So, uh, you know, 
having some protections for Australian society, I think, is quite reasonable. Uh, but then I think much more importantly, look overseas, right? Even New Zealand. Now, New Zealand has been the most accommodating country in the region, certainly the most accommodating Western country towards uh, Chinese influence and Chinese demands. Even New Zealand this year has been on the receiving end of Chinese anger, that it is not doing enough <laughs> right, to uh, to uh, appease China. So when you get into appeasement, really, there's no limit to it, uh, no matter how much you appease. But again, the aforementioned critics, along with the distinguished Singaporean intellectual Kishore Mabulbani, yeah. who I mentioned earlier, debated John Mearsheimer on these related questions at right. a CIS webinar, which is now about 600,000 views. I mean, Mabulbani would argue that the balance of power in East Asia is shifting against the United States, against a declining USA, yeah. while China is becoming more assertive. So doesn't it then make sense for Australia to, rather than provoke China, to accommodate itself yeah. to China's rise? So first, I think Bob Obani's wrong. But second, let's take his argument at face value. Let's say he's right. Oh, well, would Australians, if, if he's right, that China is the new rising power that is going to dominate the Asia-Pacific, would Australia rather accede to that domination or would rather Australia rather rally all the allies it can to ensure that this outcome doesn't happen? I mean, if anything, I think Mababani's thesis suggests that Australia should do much, much more to get New Zealand back into the Western alliance, to build alliances with Indonesia, to, to really build a, a coalition to resist Chinese yes. expansionism. Now, luckily, I think Mabubani overstates the case. I, I don't think China is anywhere near as threatening as mm. he thinks it is. Well, he doesn't call it threatening, but as he thinks it is powerful. Um, well, you've but, identified it, a lot of weaknesses and uh, limitations of the Chinese regime. You know, I think there are a lot of limitations, and you know, I've written a lot on that over the last ten years of my academic work, uh, especially in, in foreign the, affairs magazine ten years ago. Well, in 2011, I had a cover article in Foreign Affairs magazine alongside the former uh, chief economic advisor, advisor of India, mm -hmm. uh, Arvind Subramanian. Me saying, look, China's growth is going to stop by 2020. Mm. And him saying, no, no, China is going to overtake the U.S. and it's going to become the largest country in the world, not just by total GDP, but by per capita GDP by the end of the century. And I, I essentially said, that's crazy. You know, China faces severe limitations. It's very easy to grow from nothing to middle income level. All you have to do is stop destroying your economy. I mean, for the reason China has grown up to $8,000, $10,000 per capita GDP is that China stopped doing the Maoist destruction of its economy and just said, well, we'll let the economy grow. Okay. Mm. To put things in perspective, China's GDP per capita is still slightly below Mexico's. So China, for everyone who's amazed at China's economic mm. management, you think, well, are you amazed at Mexican economic management? Because that's the level China's at. Now, that's much better than when it was under Mao, but that's still not really... That great. And let's not overlook the demographic challenges that face China. Well, that's part of it. So, so it's it's a demographic challenge. It's now become such a commonplace. I hear even yeah. politicians talking about it. You know, China will grow old before it gets rich. Well, you know, demographers and those of us in the social sciences were saying that ten years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it faces a, an environmental challenge. That is China's environment. China has exploited its environment for economic gain to such an extreme extent that it's now having to do remediation. There's no mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. Well, that's expensive. You know, mm -hmm. now that China wants Beijing not to have smog emergencies every day in the winter, that's costly to, to remediate that. And they are starting to remediate that. And well, they should. But it means that economic their their economic competitive advantage is declining. There's the democratic demographic problems, uh, the environmental problems. And then finally, they just have an, an investment problem. 
right? So no yes. one, not no one, there's increasingly people don't want to invest in China because the opportunities are no longer there. China is no longer a poor country rapidly scaling up. It's now a mature middle income country where, you know, foreign investors are much less keen than they used to be. And on top of that, China, for security reasons, doesn't seem to want foreign investment. You quite rightly highlighted the weaknesses and limitations in China. But are you overlooking the problems in the United States? Um, you and I have discussed this at length in other forums, but um, the, the the bitter polarization that dogs the United States, uh, the former Defence Secretary Robert Gates in the administrations of President George W. Bush and Barack Obama said about 10 years ago that the greatest national security threat that the United States uh, faces, it's not from China, it's not from Russia, it's not from Iran, it's not from the Sunni jihadists, then known as Islamic State, it's the two square miles between the Capitol building and the White House in Washington, D.C. So how worried should we, should we be about this toxic polarization? Yeah, look, Gates may think that. Our president, I'm American, for anyone who hasn't gathered that, uh, our <laughs> president, Joe Biden, thinks that the greatest threat to the United States is ultra-mega uh, extremists. Uh, everyone thinks the greatest threat to the United States is right around the corner. And if you believe any of them, I have a bridge to sell you, if not in Brooklyn, then at least over here in the, the harbor, uh, over here you know, near CIS headquarters. Uh, look, for my whole life, my whole life, and I'm, I'm now 52 years old, my whole life, people have been saying how the U.S. is over. Our internal divisions are going to destroy it. I mean, the, the first articles saying that U.S. dominance in the world was over came in 1949, <laughs> at the yeah. end after World War II, when the Soviet Union developed a nuclear bomb. It's like, oh, that's it. When Soviet Union put up Sputnik, that's it. U.S. dominance is over. When Ronald Reagan went to Berlin and gave that famous speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, the Germans were protesting. <laughs> they were protesting in West Berlin that this, this militarist American president was trying to score political points over their city's problems. Well, you know, we look at all of this in retrospect now and we say, oh, the 50s were the golden age of American power. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was so right in the 1980s. You know, and it's going to be the same today. You it's, are an optimist. You are an eternal optimist. Oh, frankly, the DNA of CNA is to be optimistic because uh, all the available evidence shows that technological innovations and free markets and free trade have led to prosperity all around the world. However, we do have these ghastly inflationary consequences from the COVID pandemic. Yeah. We have this illiberal cancel culture and identity politics, which seeks to divide people by race and religion and yeah. gender. We have on top of this, this energy transition, which will be expensive. And then the costs, the whole process of decarbonizing the economy will not be a cost-free exercise. Then of course, you've got a rising and more assertive China. You've got the problems in Ukraine as a result of a, a, of a revenge-seeking revenge uh, Russia. Uh, are you um, still optimistic given all of these dire uh, uh, circumstances that are taking place over the next decade? So yeah, there, there, there have always been dire challenges. And if you look at things in the long term, the U.S. economy has grown roughly, GDP per capita has grown roughly 2.5% per year for the last 170 years, the whole time period over which we have data. And I'm betting it's going to grow on average 2 to 2.5% per year over the next 150 years. Uh, and the rest of the world will come along with that. So in general, innovation happens in the US. The US, among major economies, has by far the highest GDP per capita. I mean, you can isolate 
Qatar or Norway, you know, which for very specific reasons have high GDP because of resources. But for major economies, the U.S. is by far the leading major economy. So far, the leading that, that I think people don't even realize it. Uh, you know, the, the United States has 50 percent higher GDP than Germany. You know, California has double the GDP per capita of Japan. I, I mean, the, the advantage in, in the U.S. is just over the rest of the Western world is just enormous. And the rest of the Western world adopts over time technologies that have been pioneered in the U.S. So the U.S. economy is pioneering these things. It filters to the rest of the Western world who are just a step, you know, they're maybe 10 years behind in GDP per capita. And this relationship is so consistent, going back as far as we can measure it, that yes, there'll be problems. You know, look, in the 1970s, inflation was a serious problem. Mm. And we you know, got point stagflation, high inflation and high unemployment. Well, it was stagflation compared to the growth rates of the 1960s. But in fact, U.S. economic growth in the 1970s was stronger than it was in the 2000s, right? So we remember it as stagflation because at the time everyone says there are hostages in Iran. There's an oil crisis. Inflation is 20 percent. How could the country possibly recover? And then came Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. You know, yeah. I, I think this is a recurring feature, not just of U.S. history, but of, of Western history in general. I mean, we're always and maybe the reason we do so well is that we're always so concerned about the challenges on the horizon, but then we rise to meet those challenges. And mm. every time we do, and I have no reason to believe that we won't rise to meet them in the future. Okay, let's talk about you and CIS. You've been affiliated with us since you wrote that splendid report on uh, Australia's university sector and its dependence on China. Thank you. Um, uh, you're now head of our program on China and free societies. Tell us more about what you'd like to do with the program going forward. We have to, first of all, keep focusing on the China challenge. China is a challenge to the free world, and it's especially a challenge in our region, in the Indo-Pacific. And we should continue to write about that, research it. I think we need to shift from alerting the world to the challenge posed by China. The world's now aware, right? And CIS played an instrumental part in that. I mean, you know, Center for Independent Studies, under your leadership, Tom, and I will credit where credit is due, brought out U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who made that speech here in Sydney at a CIS event, essentially saying, look, would, would you rather make money or have your liberty? I don't remember his exact words, but, you know, is it, is it worth a barrel of soybeans to sell sure. your soul? Now that security trumps prosperity. Um, you know, and and... CIS has played a really important part in changing the narrative so that now there's a recent Freedom House report. And I know we'll talk about Freedom House a little bit later, but there's a recent Freedom House report showing that among countries in the Indo-Pacific region, Australia was the most resilient to Chinese influence operations. Mm. Uh, they only listed, I think the United States was listed as being more resilient than Australia and Taiwan for obvious reasons, more resilient to Chinese influence operations. But among other countries mm -hmm. in the entire Indo-Pacific region, Australia was the most resilient. And the CIS played a big part in that. But I think going forward, it's time to go on the offensive. As we don't have to raise the alarm here in Australia, mm -hmm. we should be going out to the Pacific Islands. We should be going out to the Indian Ocean, to places like Sri Lanka. And we should be saying, look, what are the institutional mechanisms that are necessary there in order to make those societies more resilient to the China challenge. And I'd really like to take this whole China challenge narrative on the offensive, get out in the region, push our research focus out rather than inward. And as you well know, Australia and the United States as a way of dealing with this China challenge has uh, strengthened security relations with Japan, which of course has long been a US treaty ally, but also India, which is traditionally part of the non-aligned movement, 
Now, India is a, a country that you're very much interested in. You yeah. did a splendid interview with the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott on the nature of India uh, to mark the 75th anniversary of partition. And of course, um, you've written a lot about uh, Prime Minister Modi, but you mentioned Freedom House before. Freedom House came out with a report, they're not alone, uh, saying that uh, India, under the leadership of Modi, has become increasingly illiberal yeah. because of this so-called Hindu nationalism. You take no a longer, different view. Why? No longer a free country, according to Freedom House, now only partly free uh, on a par with Russia and, you know, much of uh, you know, many of the less savory regimes of, of you know, of Eurasia. Not just Freedom House, other groups like the oh, uh, Rising Democracy Institute, the Economist yeah. Intelligence Unit. This has but been. You a, disagree with that consensus? Why? Uh, uh, look, uh, now, fair, fair acknowledgement to our audience. Tom told me he was going to ask this question. <laughs> I don't want to pretend that I have my notes here just, uh, you know, coincidentally. Um, I want to read you something about Australia. Now, this is not whataboutism. Bear with me on this. Amnesty International says that in Australia, racism not only exists, but is a growing problem. Over the past 10 years, racist incidents have been reported in practically all aspects of Australian society, et cetera, et cetera. 76% of Australians from a non-European background have experienced racial discrimination. Yeah. Reporters Without Borders, Reporters Sans Frontiers. Press freedom is fragile in this island continent of 26 million people, where nearly 90% of journalists said they feared an increase in threats, harassment, or intimidation, starting with threats from the government. What country, now, what country are we talking about here? Now, Australia. <laughs> now, now, I raise these because, because when I want to illustrate that when we hear things about like this about Australia, we shrug our shoulders. <laughs> you know, we say, look, we know these reports are highly politicized. We know that people use them to further their own political agendas. They're sharpening their knives and, you know, getting ready to stab someone. But when we see reports like this, we see reporting in the New York Times or the Washington Post about India, we take it at face value. Mm -hmm. Now, what I've done in my research is gone to the data. Everything I've written on India as a comparative quantitative sociologist has been data driven. It's been, let's go to the data. Let's get the actual figures. Let's get the truth of things. And so what I've been writing about India is that these reports from these major international ratings organizations have been widely reported in the media have been based on outdated data, on misleading data. I mean, look, I'll just give you the one top example I love to give because it's so easy. Everyone can see it. Uh, all, these reports mention that India, more journalists are killed in India than in any other country in the world outside China. There's no data for China. More journalists are killed in India than for any other country mm. in the world. That sounds terrible. Mm. But wait a minute. There are 1.4 billion people in India. Uh, if you adjust for population, India's yeah. journalist death rate, 3.5 per billion. The rest of the world, 6.3, which means journalists are actually safer in India <laughs> than in the rest of the world. Now, anybody who's not politicized would automatically say, if you see any statistic on India, you would say, yeah, have you adjusted for population, right? You know, number of car accidents in India, have you adjusted for population? Number of suicides in India, have you adjusted for population? You know, number of farmers who are bankrupt in India, have you adjusted for population? The only reason I can see why the editors of these reports would not have adjusted for population or demanded that their writers adjust is that they themselves have a political agenda. Now, I, I want to share everyone, I have no political agenda on India. In my work in India, uh, my work on India, I have called out government uh, malfeasance where I've seen it. In our interview with Tony Abbott, we spent half an hour mm -hmm. aggressively asking Tony, Mr. Abbott, sorry, I should, 
aggressively asking Mr. Abbott about what people have said about Indian democracy and what's his, you know, how would he respond to the sorts of criticisms that we have seen? And many of them are legitimate. For example, over the status of Muslims in Indian society, this is legitimate criticism. Yeah. But I want to stress, it's a legitimate criticism on the level that, you know, talking about the status of indigenous Australians is legitimate. Okay. Well, India, Modi, uh, Hindu nationalism, illiberalism is a complicated subject to be continued. Salvatore, finally, congratulations on the 100th episode of On Liberty. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for watching. You're the real stars of this program. Final word for Salvatore. Thanks so much.